Welcome to the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship of McMinnville podcast. Founded in 2007, UUFM is a gathering place for people who embrace a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. We are located in the heart of Oregon's Willamette Valley wine country. Please visit us on the web at macuuf.org, M-A-C-U-U-F dot org. And if you are ever in or near the McMinnville area, don't hesitate to stop by and visit us. UUFM gathers in love and service for justice and peace. Well, now it's time for Reverend Springberry's sermon, and she's asked me to introduce that with a reading. People come into your life for a reason, a season, or a lifetime. When someone is in your life for a reason, it is usually to meet a need you have expressed. They have come to assist you through a difficulty, to provide you with guidance and support, to aid you physically, emotionally, or spiritually. They may seem like a godsend, and they are. They are there for the reason you need them to be. Then without any wrongdoing on your part, or at an inconvenient time, this person will say or do something to bring the relationship to an end. Sometimes they, they die. Sometimes they walk away. Sometimes they act up and force you to take a stand. What we must realize is that our need has been met, our desire fulfilled, their work is done, the prayer you sent up has been answered, and now is the time to move on. Some people come into your life for a season because your turn has come to share, grow, or learn. They bring you an experience of peace or make you laugh. They usually give you an unbelievable amount of joy. Believe it, it is real, but only for a season. Lifetime relationships teach you lifetime lessons, things you must build upon in order to have a solid emotional foundation. Your job is to accept the lesson and love the person. It is said that love is blind, but friendship is clairvoyant. So for weeks, I've been mulling over what I would say to you today, this morning where I say goodbye. And I decided that I wanted to give you a gift for your journey. And you have been so kind this morning, giving me gifts for my journey, those beautiful quilts and that lovely, lovely sun blessing. So I thought I must have gifts I could give. And I, I thought I must have something in my ministerial bag that would be of use to you. My ministry bag is one of those really large, over-the-shoulder ones that people take to the beach that don't have any pockets for phones or keys, so everything's jumbled in it. And I run a bit disorganized, so mine's really a mess. And the bottom is all covered with crumbs, goldfish crumbs from RE, and, and cookie crumbs from, from the coffee table, and I think today some cake crumbs will be added to it. And there always seems to be a lot of garbage in it, black rock coffee cups and receipts, but never ever the receipt that I need to turn in for reimbursement. And there's usually some balled up pages of sermons that didn't work out. But I figured there must be a gift in here somewhere. So I reached in and took 
the thing that was on the top, and it was a jewel, solid, heavy, glittering beautifully, and purpose, it says on it. When it comes to congregations, that is a good gift. However, you've already got that. The committed team has created a draft mission statement for you, UFM, one that you will work on together and polish and, and, and call into your center, if it's the right one. And this is what it says now. Create a thriving sanctuary that welcomes everyone. Engage all the generations in spiritual dialogue and growth. Work with the larger community to build a more harmonious world. I reached in for something else and I found a small, soft leather book. No surprise there, it is always at my fingertips. I flipped through the pages. Love your neighbor as yourself, the process of becoming. Generosity, gratitude, covenant, UU values, spiritual practice. Lovely gifts, or I think so anyway. It's my theology. It grounds me. But I have already preached much of that here. So I reached Dreber in, and I grabbed a small bag that had a hammer and a screwdriver. Ah, government. Dull, really, but pretty necessary. But the board has already set up an ad hoc committee to clarify govern governance and who does what and who will do what and policies and procedures, so that's under control. Next, I found a tattered paperback, UU History and Thought. Always an excellent gift, but not for now. And then I discovered my favorites, a box of chocolate, compassion and kindness. Those seemed exactly right to me. I opened the box. Love for the stranger, I mused. That's always good. Or love for the new, the surprise, the unpredictable. Hmm, very possible. I reached back in almost idly, and my fingers wrapped around a very small ringed notebook. I pulled it out, frayed at the edges, old, all the pages heavy with penciled words. On the front, it said stories. Ah, yes, I thought, stories. Thomas King, a Native American storyteller, says, stories are all that we are. Stories are all we are. Stories are a very good gift. The Saturday after Donald Trump was elected president, my condo flooded. I had left early the auction at Woof, the congregation that I serve in Southwest Port Portland, to finish my sermon for the next day. My progress had been dreadfully slow. How did I make sense of what had happened? How did I bring hope to people who at that moment described themselves as stunned, hit by a truck, afraid, angry, devastated, sick, achy, reeling, shocky, nauseous, unable to sleep, disassociative. That all seems so long ago, doesn't it? When I arrived home, however, those musings vanished when my neighbors met me at the car. Their condo was flooding. They had called the fire department. What about mine? I pulled open the door and a lake covered the floor. We ran in, water soaking into our shoes to find water pouring from under my upstairs bathroom sink. We found the valve and turned it off. 
The whole floor upstairs was inundated, and water rained through the ceiling into the bedrooms below. The story I have told about that night and the weeks after has been a dark one. That first night was surreal, and it comes now just in flashes of memory. The burly, silent firemen with huge vacuums, my fumbled attempts to call my insurance company, my neighbor coming in and out, more men lugging in huge fans, all my books dumped into the middle of my bed, the carpet ripped up, revealing shiny plywood soaked. Hours after I walked in the door, I collapsed on my daughter's bed, the only dry place in the house. I was too exhausted to even consider going to the hotel the insurance company had booked for me. I probably couldn't even drive safely. Instead, I opened my computer and I began to write. I showed up in church the next morning, fearful that if I spoke, I would cry. I smiled dutifully and said the few things I absolutely had to say. I preached. Afterwards, I returned home, loaded the car with things I would need, and moved into the hotel. I was numb and exhausted. The weeks after were the hotel, an empty, bland apartment, endless decisions and appointments, managing two holidays and the needs of four children and three congregations. The story I have told about that flood was about being broken and being pressed down. That story, though, changed not long ago. My daughter and I were discussing how if one thing hadn't happened, even a bad thing, then something else might not have happened, like a good thing. The conversation turned somehow to the flood. What might not have happened if the flood had not happened? Would we have finished the Harry Potter books, I asked her? We both thought maybe we wouldn't have. Finishing the Harry Pot Potter series was great for us. It connected us and has been the material for many conversations about life and evil and magic and family and friends and our own characters. She had been begging for months for me to read the fifth book. We'd done the first four, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. And I had worried that the final books in the series would be too dark for a second grader. But there we were in our small hotel room, and we needed something. I made some calls to some older people who had read them in second grade and did some research, and I determined she probably wouldn't be scarred for life. So we made two apple pies, our favorite food, in the small hotel kitchen. We curled up on the hotel bed, and we ate apple pie and read Harry Potter. And that was how we spent Thanksgiving vacation. And it was absolutely marvelous. There were no shoulds or no oughts. It was like a snow days, those days out of time, unexpected, full of nothing. And we remembered other good things about our exile, basking and dancing in that sun-drenched, empty apartment. My son lived with us for a month while he painted the condo and relayed all the floors. And our condo ended up so much nicer than it had been before. And I began to realize during that conversation how much I had cut out that had really happened in order to make the story of the flood so dark and so nasty. 
I had not only left out Harry Potter and the apple pie and a whole month with my 26-year-old son, but other moments of beauty, blessing, strength, and perseverance. During that long-ago night, after I curled up in bed to finish that sermon, an email popped into my inbox for a blog I subscribed to. It was an article about Leonard Cohen, who had just died, quoting his ideas about our culture and about democracy, and the article brought the whole sermon together. I wove the words of Cohen's anthem through the sermon, ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Somehow curled up in the one dry place in my waterlogged house, I found the blessing and hope I had been seeking all week. Cohen's words focused me back to my faith as a Unitarian Universalist and a vision of the world where all are welcome and all can flourish, even Donald Trump supporters. It reminded me that our response to actions that violate our values do not have to be perfect. It just has to be the bells that one can still ring. The next morning, there was standing room only in the Wolf Sanctuary. We had 30 visitors who expressed a need for a community who shared their values that Sunday morning, and we were there for them. It was such a blessing. It turned out to be one of the most important sermons I've ever given. I could barely speak when I showed up in church, but when I did, what I said mattered. I remember how relaxed I became, how easy it was. It was as if I was blessed by the Spirit in those moments. That day and for weeks after, people thanked me for helping them through that moment and offering hope, which is what I hope to do as a minister. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. I am telling a different story about the flood now. It was a crisis, certainly. It was hard. But there was not only darkness, there was light. And when I first told the story, I forgot the light. There was grace, Harry Potter, apple pie, good, kind people, over and over, good, kind people. And I could still ring bells. And I did stop trying to do things perfectly. And what a gift both have been to me. My life had cracked, and the light came in, and I found out it could go out as well. If I had something else that my bag is filled with, is this idea that the religious question is always, how do we negotiate lives where there is so much pain and there is so much beauty and wonder and love? And my story suddenly had that complexity in it, the complexity that I try to always remember in my life. Stories are what we are, says Thomas King. Psychologists and neuroscientists, it happens, agree with King. Neuroscientists say that narrative is our brain's medium. 
People use stories to explain their lives. Narratives give experience meaning. We, they craft our experiences into something that we can remember and learn from. They determine what we remember, actually, and what we forget. Stories make our lives coherent. They are so important that our left brain, who is simply a storyteller in many ways, will take the tiniest bits of data and craft it into some coherent narrative. Even when we don't know much about the things that happened, we take the couple things we know and we draw lines between a few things and build a whole story so we can understand, so we are not confused. We hate being confused. And especially do this when our emotions are high and we need a story to hold on to. It's completely the nature of gossip. Consider hearing that a couple that seemed so happy to everyone is divorcing. No one understands this. So the community begins to talk to each other to figure it out and begins recalling incidents nearly forgotten that can be woven into some narrative that explains the surprising change in the story. Maybe those bits of information that are suddenly being pulled into memory were forgotten because they did not fit that narrative of such a happy couple. But now they are remembered. Or maybe we think we remember a slamming door that never actually slammed just so we can explain the new situation. We do that too, unfortunately. We make things up. And I'm not just saying that, that's what the psychologists have discovered. So, the stories we craft are based almost always on the stories that we always tell. If A has caused B in our stories, then in new stories, our brain will probably insist that A has caused B, even if there might be, in this case, just the thinnest of evidence. Our stories typically have themes that repeat, themes like, I'm not smart, or we have a strong and loving community, or he is manipulative, or things always go well, it always turns out. Our brains take these themes seriously and make new stories with the same theme. If we have to leave out details or add details to create a favorite narrative structure, we will absolutely just do it. This propensity of our brains is why fake news works so well. If the news we read fits into our pre-constructed ideas of how things are, then the news seems true, even if it isn't. And it works the other way, too. If you read news that doesn't fit into the pre-constructed narrative, then we dismiss it. And both liberals and conservatives do this. We not only create stories to explain our personal experiences, but cultures have favored narratives that they use to explain events as well. In the United States, we love the story of the hero. We like people who are nearly superhuman and have the capacity to transform things. Martin Luther King Jr. is a great example. When King was given a holiday and a page in elementary history books, we stripped him from his community, from the knowledge and wisdom he received from the black community and in theological school, from the people who had laid the groundwork for the civil rights movement for decades before he was born, from his leadership team, from his wife and family and friends, from the people who showed up to march and protest with him. We tell the story that King was such a great leader that he made the civil rights movement happen. 
We leave out the fact that he would not have been the leader he was if he didn't have that community around him. The hero story, not in the Joseph Campbell sense, but as a story about how things happen in history, is actually a terrible story. It disempowers ordinary people. People think they need a leader or nothing will happen and nothing will change. So we wait for Spider-Man, the Black Panther, the Avengers to clean up the evil and fix everything. For many, that hero was and is Donald Trump. Progressives are waiting for Mueller or maybe the, one of those strong Democrat women who just won in the primaries. Church communities also tell stories that shape how they see themselves. One congregation sees itself as a community that fights for justice. Another is a safe place for liberal points of view. I think UUFM sees itself as a close and loving family. The stories we tell matter. They shape what we see and they shape what we do not see. They shape how we act in the world. They shape what we do. In one study, psychologists um, noted that partners, spouses who told negative stories about their partners tended to notice more negative things about their partners and were more likely to end up divorced. Whereas spouses who told really positive stories about their spouse usually noticed more positive things and stayed married. In the United States, another example, a common story, and it's unconscious in so many of us and conscious in some, is that black people are the bad guys. We come to this from a long historical narrative. They are the drug dealers and the welfare queens. They are dangerous and they live in ghettos. With that stormly entrenched, white people will fill in details to confirm that story and act on it. So police will shoot a black man holding a cell phone. Others call the police because a black person is in a dorm using the bathroom at Starbucks or in a park. In the overreaching narrative about black people, for these people, they just don't belong in those places. So they're su suspicious. Some stories actually kill people. The story that I used to tell about the flood disempowered me. In that story, life took me out. In reality, that didn't actually happen. I had wonderful times during the flood months. I was graced with spirit and strength and was able to bring love and hope into the world. Maybe not as much as I would have liked, but definitely some. And this is really a good thing to know about myself. I don't go down easily. It takes more than a flood. The stories we tell ourselves in our lives and in our communities change. We grow and we learn. The stories of our childhood or a marriage shift as we incorporate new information and insights. And sometimes they just shift simply without us ever even noticing that we tell different stories about our childhood than we once did, for example. And other times our stories run into in unexplainable situations. And the coherence, needing coherence, requires us dramatically to reshape the stories we've told the old ones no longer make any sense. That's a crisis. 
So why do I share all of this as I stand before you saying goodbye? Because my hope is that the stories that we each tell about our two years of joint ministry will matter and that they will make our ministries going forward flourish. These stories, however we choose to tell them, will shape our future. It will shape what we see and what we do. And so I want us to choose stories that create wonderful ministries. And what kinds of stories are those? The psychologists say that the stories that matter, that change us, that grow our souls, are stories that don't rush to a happy ending. If, for example, you tell the story of your divorce in a way that leads happily to happily ever after and skip all of that mess, all that anger and grief and challenges, it's unlikely that you will learn much from that experience as the person, as much as, as the, about that experience as the person who really accounts in their story for the complications. As a UU minister, I believe that the responsible search for truth and meaning requires us to create stories that don't jettison parts of the experience in order to just jump to a comfortable repeating storyline, which I think I did with the flood. Like, life is hard. Um, so I think it makes sense to take some time with the stories, because as we transform the stories, we change ourselves. And that is one way that we grow our souls. And that's one way that we grow our characters. So in the flood story, I originally left out all the strength. I left out grace for this sad, hard story, this woe-is-me story. The new story is way truer about who I am and about the help that I receive from powers beyond myself without sort of cutting out how hard some of it was. So you probably want to know what my story is for our joint ministry. And I have to tell you the truth that I am still crafting that story. And perhaps you are still crafting yours. This ministry has been confusing many times for me. And I think that creating the story will take time. But I do know some parts of it that I will share with you. My story has a cast of interesting, warm, smart, skilled, caring people. And that is you. That is all of you. And that is others who cannot be with us today for whatever reason. My story is filled with people that I have truly enjoyed and truly loved. My story has many holy moments in it. Moments of listening as you told me your stories. That's been very precious. On being with Bernie at the end of his life. There were some holy moments in board meetings. A few times in worship, especially when we sing together. The moment when I realized, I have to say, the, the song that they sang this morning, that was a holy moment. And then there was that moment in the memorial service that many of us worked hard to craft for Nakoda, when I discovered that that service had blessed her very long time estranged daughter. What a gift that this congregation gave to a hurting family. My story will also include some difficult parts. 
unkindness, rumors, misunderstandings, anger, and hurt. It will have an epiphany in it, knowing that ministry doesn't work, always work, and that love isn't always enough, and that poor communication, systems, change, past stories, history, all of it, for everyone, can get in the way. My story will also tell how I am a better minister for having served you. I have learned more about my strengths and about my weaknesses and about what I truly serve, which is, I think, kindness and compassion and the holy and hospitality. And I am much clearer after the last two years about things that I must do to serve those more effectively. My ministry with you, I believe, helped me be able to shift that story of the flood so I could rewrite it into a truer narrative. I do not know the stories that you tell now or the stories that you might tell in the future, but I do hope that the stories that you craft lead to a deeper capacity to love and to bless all of those who need our blessings. Many evenings before I sleep, I do the loving kindness meditation from the Buddhist tradition. And I offer it to all of us as we go into our time of meditation, where we will sit quietly for three minutes. May I be filled with loving kindness. May I be happy. May I be well. May you be filled with loving kindness. May you be happy. May you be well. May all who are not with us in this room be filled with loving kindness. May they be happy. May they be well. May all of us be filled with loving kindness. May we be happy. May we be well.